Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Coming up on today's episode, what class are you Uh, We've got a big project in the Times and on Times Radio about class in Britain in 2021, teaming up with Deborah Mattinson, who you've heard on the podcast many times before, uh, normally talking about politics and particularly those red wall seats. But today we're talking about class. Uh, Apparently as a country, we are becoming more middle class and less working class. But it's not about the money that you have or even whether or not you own your own home. It's far more likely to be about which part of the country you live in and the food that you eat. Really fascinating focus groups uh, coming up on that. But first, we kick off, as ever, with our columnist panel. And for the last time before she leaves us for Pastures New, uh, it's Esther Webber. And, of course, she's, as ever, on a Thursday, joined by Robert Crampton. Before we come to class, which obviously we will do in a moment, uh, let's talk about, uh, which is slightly, maybe this slightly resonates as well, uh, the Labour Party. Uh, Keir Starmer is launching Labour's local election campaign today. Uh, He's focusing on pay for nurses, which is slightly odd because obviously local councils don't have any say over how much nurses should be paid. But such is the the nature of local election campaigns, um, not always necessarily reflecting what the election is all about. What do we think uh, Keir Starmer needs to do to sort of re- connect with the public? Or what will be his first big electoral test? Loads of elections, local elections in England, mayoral elections, police com- uh, and crime commission elections, plus elections in Wales and Scotland as well. Esther, what do you think he needs needs to do? What's a good a good result for Keir Starmer? Um, well, I think you know, obviously, there's a lot of expectation management going on here already um, with the Labour side talking about the vaccine bounce for the government Um, but he can't just sort of uh, focus on what they're doing he needs to focus on what Labour has got to offer and they've been given a little bit of a gift with the whole 
controversy over um, pay for the NHS, so I expect that will come up. But it feels like there need to be something else as well, um, maybe something green um, that would sort of just mark them out a little bit. I think that, that that's probably. I think actually it's your line, Esther. So we'll get Esther back on a different line. Um, Robert, it, it's interesting. This isn't it. I mean, expectation management is so typical of uh, local election uh, campaigns in particular. Mm. Both sides say, "Oh, it's going to be terrible. We're lucky if we've got a councillor yeah. left at the end of it." Um, but this thing about oh, the government is getting a vaccine bounce. It's not like you know. It's because we've won the World Cup and over <laughs> something the government has no. Uh, possible uh, rolling. I mean, the government is getting a vaccine bounce because it's doing quite well at rolling out the vaccine. Well, yeah, and the people who are rolling it out are all nurses who've just been offered 1%, uh, or mostly nurses. So that's where Labour has to go. So, I mean, I said this last week, and I think uh, they just have to keep hammering away at that. I mean, sadly, it's got nothing to, like you say, it's got nothing really to do with local government. But I think they could uh, they could make some progress with this. Same old Tories, you know, they said they love the nurses, but they're not going to give them any money. And they, they're using this slogan that the mask is slipping, which it's the trouble yeah. with it, which in the past they would get. sort of, you know, to reveal the nasty old Tories. Currently, the mask is slipping just means, you know, somebody's on the train and their, their nose is popped out above. Yeah, you it's not it, great. It's... And also and also I think I'm, it's hard to do that with people with, with Sunak in particular because he just doesn't. He doesn't look or sound or talk like the same old Tory, does he? Uh, it's hard. It's hard to. It's going to be hard to pin that on him. Uh, maybe you can pin it on Boris. Uh, I was interested to see what Boris had written in 1995 about working class people. I think that was in the, the red box this morning, in the Spectator. So he's. Uh, you, you can certainly attack him on those lines. But I suppose the thing is part of. Uh... Boris Johnson's success in uh, politics, Esther, is is not being tarnished by being an old Etonian who thought earning £250,000 a year for a column was chicken feed and all that. People, for whatever reason, rightly or wrongly, do not see him as the same old Tories. They don't really seem to work. I mean, the fact that obviously he won this massive majority in 2019 shows that people aren't really that fast about where he's from it's more about what he's doing and what he has to offer and i think that's where labor will be well advised to focus and even if you know local elections are still often fought on national allegiances or sympathies there there's more labor to be saying about the difference they would be able to make on a local basis with things like green policies and that maybe the Tories want to compete with them a bit more over. Uh, yeah, and I suppose that, that, that's the thing. And in turn, I mean, I, I sort of feel legally obliged to ask this question. The Lib Dems, uh, they used to be very strong in local government and then they sort of worked their way up to... Uh, you know, winning then constituencies and building a base in Parliament, that sort of thing. Uh, we, if there's any life left in the Lib Dems, we probably have to see it quite soon in these contests, Robert. I mean, I'm old enough to remember, was it called pavement politics, I think, with uh, yes. David Alton in Liverpool in the 70s. And, I mean, these are it's a way forward for the Lib Dems. These are, after all, what people uh, care about, the bins and the potholes and the parking and the 
where I live, it, road closures is probably a bigger issue than uh, uh, the lockdown at the moment, I would say. Uh, so, yeah, they can make some headway there. I, I like local elections. I mean, I'm the opposite of Brenda from Bristol. I love voting. And uh, I think, uh, you know, we, they, we, we should... Uh, the, the local issues are, are uh, always interesting and important to get behind. And I suppose they do because it, we are some way off an election, uh, a general election as yet, and yeah. there are so many elections happening. They, do, they are going to give us some indication of if Labour do sweep the board in some of those red wall seats, it's a sign they might be coming back. And if the Tories manage to repeat their success of uh, yeah. 18 months ago, then that'll be, that'll be interesting. But they well. also, my point is they also matter in and of themselves, I think. Yeah. They, yeah, local yeah. They, do have, they, do have some, they do have a certain amount of power, and it's where people, well, at least, what people care about. And not least with uh, things like social care, Esther. We, there was, you know, this story that was around today about, you know, some care homes not letting people in to see their relatives and that sort of thing. You know, people's something suddenly becoming very real for lots of people as to what your local council actually does. Yeah, massively. So um, I, I'm very much hoping I'll be able to go and go and see my grandmother in her care home last week. And um, the impression I get is that quite a lot of care homes have been sort of making decisions for themselves um, on on a safe basis, but because they don't necessarily think what's being done at national level is, is the best thing for the rest of us. And, um, and I think, yeah, that's been a bit of a kind of hidden story of this latest phase of the lockdown. OK, so we, we, as I mentioned, it is your last week with The Times or with Times Red Box. So we have to talk about one of your favourite subjects, which you <laughs> wrote about in your last Red Box email. But it is topical as well. Parliament, yeah. the the restoration of Parliament and the fact that we still don't know when it's going to happen. So give us an update on this. Um, so, yeah, I sort of, I couldn't resist writing about this in my last Red Box because it was one of the first things I, I worked on with you and um, it really feels like deja vu all, all over again when no father thought with um, getting the big restoration job that's needed on on the way. But we've had a review. Everyone will be very excited to learn. We've had a review. And um, the review is being published today. And that puts us on a timescale for work to begin in 2025. Um, so it's still going to be a while before anything happens. And it looks like it's going to be sort of pared back from what was originally proposed because MPs don't feel like they can justify four billion quid anymore. Um, but the main thing, I think, is just getting it started, getting it off the ground, um, especially if this government wants to have a reputation for being good on big infrastructure projects. And you make the you made the point as well that there's been all this attention on you know Boris Johnson's curtains in number ten, uh, yeah. but the, you know but number ten is not in a great state of repair, but it's not going to fall down and bits don't keep dropping off. I mean, one of the good things about Parliament basically being closed for the last twelve months is that nobody's been hit on the head by any falling 
lots yeah. of masonry. You do think it's a bit of a lost opportunity. Like, I know everyone is probably thinking, oh, the odd DIY job, I really should have got around to it. over the last year. I've had no excuse. But this is like that times a hundred. Like, you do think that with most MPs and staff off the estate for the best part of the year, they could have maybe decided to speed things up or propose a different way of working that would have allowed them to start sooner. It it really is the biggest of delayed DIY job in the country. What about you, Dave? Uh, Robert, have you been uh, you been tackling any DIY? No, I haven't, and I, uh, and uh, and uh, probably for the best. My wife's done plenty. She she she. she sorts out that side of things. I worked in Parliament in 1987, which is probably before Esther was born, I'm guessing. And uh, it was just... No, it was just, just after. Oh, OK. <laughs> and it was, and it, was, it was exactly the same then. It was a desperately unwelcoming, inefficient place. And uh, they were talking... Obviously, then they were talking about... What is that, 33 years ago? They were talking about doing it up then, and, you know, nothing's changed. <laughs> Not something it's actually dangerous. It's actually dangerous, isn't it? There's dangerous wiring and plumbing and stuff, isn't there? Yeah, and they now hire yeah. people whose job it is just to walk around day and night looking for fires. Right, um, yeah. Because if one takes hold, you know, it will whip through this yeah. this sort of labyrinth network of pipes and cables and whatever yeah. else, and, yeah, the whole place could burn down. Uh, there, was was a bit of impetus when, there was a bit of an impetus when Notre Dame went up in flames, wasn't there? And they thought, oh, we've got to yes. do something. But that's all, but then that's it's all... Sort of dissipated now, yeah. Yeah, it all, it's all passed over again. It's all passed over again. Um, let's talk about class then. Yeah. Because uh, that's what we're talking about all through the show today. As you mentioned, Robert, yeah, um, uh, my colleague Patrick McGuire dug out this quote. This is Boris Johnson uh, writing yeah. in 1995 in The Spectator that working class men were likely to be drunk, criminal, aimless, feckless and hopeless. Uh, although, as uh, Patrick talk, uh, goes on to point out, he, was, he wasn't to know then that he was talking about the, the future voters who were going to put him into number 10. <laughs> so um, I suppose we should start, first of all, with um, if you had been asking this in this poll or this uh, focus group, how would you self-identify as, uh, in terms of class? Let's start with you, Robert. So I'm middle class. I mean, uh, I suppose I was, I was born, my parents were teachers. Uh, we lived in a four-bedroom house, foreign holidays, uh, I mean, the 1970s in Hull, that was pretty good. And, uh, yeah, we were the middle of the middle class. And now, I suppose, by income and by uh, my job, I may be moving towards the upper end of the middle class. I mean, there's, there's quite, as we all know, there's quite significant divisions within the middle class. And I guess and that's what the... about you going from Hull in the north mm. and then and then well, that's, going that's to university, coming to London? Do you get yeah. and because because you you you've got an accent? Do people yeah. make assumptions about your class? They do. I've written about this a lot, and I, I mean that happened. I mean, when I went to uh, uh, Oxford University, there, there was an assumption there that uh, I must be working class because I've been partly because of my, I had the northern accent and partly because I've been to a comprehensive. Uh, and try as I might, I couldn't. I, I wasn't able to persuade people that the middle class, you know, existed uh, in Yorkshire <laughs> and Lancashire, <laughs> and even there's even a few of them up in the northeast as well. Uh, Although interestingly, so actually, it is, it is borne out in this poll. It is much. Yeah. Low, I think the lowest was yeah. in the northeast. It was. Um, so that, it is. Yeah. yeah um, it, then, what yeah, about you, Esther? 
Uh, yeah, depressingly similar to Robert. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm definitely from middle class background, and um, and sort of similar when I, when I was at school, state school in South London, um, people thought I was posh. I was posh because I lived in a four bedroom house and went on holidays and all that. But also, like Robert, when I went to university, yeah, I, I realised I wasn't as posh as some other people in the grand scheme. <laughs> um, and that was a bit of a culture shock as well. I think I had an ex-boyfriend who told me I wasn't properly posh because I didn't go to private school. So whatever that means. But yeah, that's a good Matt. test. Can I just point out, Matt, that we've got three state school kids on the, on Times Radio. That must be some sort of record, isn't it? Blimey, somebody will pull the plug soon. <laughs> <laughs> A siren will go off. Um, quick, yeah. quick, can we, can we find an old Tonian? Yeah, there is this slight. Um, uh, I mean, I've, I've I've sort of talked about this a lot before as well. You know, I I grew up. I sort of it's difficult to know when my dad's a plumber. There were times we're growing up where we didn't have masses of money. We did. It was like a two or three year project for us to go abroad on a plane for the first time and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But that, now, and I would completely argue. I mean, talk about middle class. But as soon as the show finishes today, one of my first jobs is to go and stack some logs we've had delivered for the for the yeah. log burner. I was uh, going to say is, that um, when you, if you ask, if you ask me about my, uh, my the object, it would be the wood. It would be the wood burner. I think. Yeah. yeah. No, I think <laughs> this is a really good example. Yeah. And I, and but the flip. I've been rearranging my wood store in lockdown, which is about as middle class as it goes. <laughs> That's about as middle class as it goes. And I, yeah, but, but moving from sort of Somerset, state school, didn't go to university, there is, it is still slight, you know, sort of slight pat on the head sometimes from um, colleagues both in journalism and in politics. Oh, haven't you done well? Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. I'm not, this isn't brain surgery, this, is it? What <laughs> no. we're doing right now. But, they but wouldn't have, they um, would, when I started on the Times, they wouldn't have let you in, believe me. And a massive, massive thank you to Esther for all that she's done on Redbox, both on the Redbox email, but also here on the podcast for the last uh, about two and a half, three years. Uh, and we wish her well. Right, coming up next on the podcast, let's talk about class. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. 
Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash boast. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This is a Redbox podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. What class are you? Do you even think about it? Do you spend your time keeping up appearances? It used to be so simple. The upper class looked down on everyone. The middle class looked up to them, but down on the lower class. And the lower class have a pain in their neck from all that looking up. But it's, what, 55 years now since the famous class sketch was broadcast on the Frost Report with John Cleese, Ronnie Buck and Ronnie Corbett lined up according to physical and social standing. Now things have got a bit more complicated. We've teamed up with Britain Thinks, the research and insight firm co-founded by Deborah Mattison, former Downing Street pollster for Gordon Brown, to examine social class in 2021. A combination of polling and focus groups, which you're going to hear from in a moment, suggests that your social class is no longer just a question of what you have in the bank or what your parents put there, nor is it about your school or home or vote. Increasingly, it's about how you spend your weekend, where you shop and the food on your plate. It seems that when it comes to class, you are what you eat. But I'm delighted that Deborah Mattison is here to explain how she got to the bottom of class in Britain today. We first did this survey 10 years ago, actually, and we looked at the overall proportion of people who identify as middle class, working class or class less. And then we looked at the, the, the different things that they identified with the class they, they, they felt they were part of. Um, and one of the first observations is to say, yes, we are now more middle class than we were 10 years ago, rising to 45% from 38%. But the public are still more likely to identify as working class. That's 54% who say they're working class. That has dropped slightly. And the other intriguing thing, I think, is to say that in fact, in, consistent with 10 years ago, um, some two thirds of us basically are class less and say that we don't identify with any class at all. It's only when you prod people and force them to make a decision that you you end up with those those headline figures. And so explain. So we know, we know about opinion polls. You ask a representative sample and this is what you get. But um, you also did some focus groups for us. And we do a lot of focus groups on the show. And I know that it's something that you've done lots of and spoke to us about but there were four groups that we did uh for this explain uh, first of all who the groups are and then we'll hear from some of them yes so we had we had basically two groups of uh working class people people who that is to say who self-identified we didn't describe decide they were working class they they told us that they were and two groups of people who self-identified as middle class but then we mixed it up a little bit because we were quite interested in in a, in transition and change and, and, and how things change. So that we had some people who self-described as middle class but said that their families were working class and some people who self-described the other way who said that they were uh, working class but that their families were middle class because we were interested to see what those journeys were like and what, and what they meant to people. And so explain the show and tell, the sort of opening of, of each focus group session. lasted about 90 minutes on Zoom a week or so ago and it, each one kicked off with a show and tell. Explain what the thinking is behind that. Yeah, so this was fascinating because we we started out, as we had done 10 years ago, by asking people to bring along an object 
that represented the class that they felt that they were part of. And just to, to jog everybody's memories uh, from 10 years ago, we, we found two intriguing things. When we asked the middle-class people to do the show and tell as you describe it, the thing that they most commonly brought, the object that they most often brought along was a cafetiere. <laughs> I mean, that does seem like a very middle-class thing. And then the working-class people 10 years ago and this was one of the most staggering things. I remember sitting in a focus group in just outside Billericay, in a place called Pitsy, um, and everybody brought along the tools of their trade. So several of the guys brought along working boots and sort of clomped them up onto the table. There was a, a, a woman who was a hairstylist who brought along her cutting scissors, another who was a manicurist who brought along little pots of nail varnish, um, a joiner who brought along his toolkit. So they all brought along the tools of their trade so for the working class people the people who self-identified as working class what mattered was the work so we were very excited and interested to see uh, what what would be different if anything this time okay well let's pick through then the four groups and we'll start with the sort of the most middle class group middle class people with middle class parents let's take a listen to to the objects uh, that they that they brought to the focus group so for me, it's all about education. Like I, I identify, I suppose, as middle class because of the fact that I'm in a well-paying job. But this is a book that all, it's beaten out because it's a book that all actuaries have to rely on to get through their exams. Mine is my uh, certificate of qualification. I'm a veterinary surgeon. Mine was just all of my books and things, loads and loads of years worth of writing and reading um I've got my own little business so all those skills I've sort of learned over the years is, is really inputted in that then I also brought a book but it's a book I'm reading at the moment and it's about the artist Lucian Freud well there we are there's quite a, a, a mixed bag but quite a lot about people really viewing their class through the job that they did whether it's an actuary or a vet or a businesswoman that's all plays a big part in people's self-identity that this time around yeah, it was more than the job, I think, because I think what they were telling us about was the qualification they held. And I think that the, the common thread that runs through all of those descriptions that we've just, just heard is, is about a sense of people's education and sort of cultural background. And I think that was what was important. OK, so let's move on to the next group. This is the middle class people, self-identifying middle class people, but whose parents were working class. So they, they've sort of moved up the ladder a bit, if you like. And I think we, we kick off this one this time with a pair of walking boots. I, I never really went abroad until I was uh, first sort of like uh, holiday at 18 years old. But uh, the walking boots were pretty much a, a fixture of every holiday. There was a lot of camping and walking and outdoor stuff. So I have my passport, which um, I think now being middle class, you know, I've got that financial freedom to travel more. Um, we didn't have holidays when I was younger. We didn't travel anywhere at all. I didn't basically go abroad until I was 22. Um, and so since then, I've travelled all over the world several times. So someone's already stole my idea because that's my passport as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the passport, I think, does define me a, a little bit. It's something that certainly when I was growing up absolutely wasn't the case. Um, going abroad was something that was seemed to be, you know, something spectacular that, that we talk about for years. But yeah, so I, I think that's what, what probably does define me, the ability to travel with ease without having too much concern about the cost implication of it. This is a it's a bottle of whiskey. Oh, sorry, it's a bottle of rum. This one, um, and it's um, it's um, from a place that we joined um, in Edinburgh. The the other thing was um, some artwork, which um, and we have a few prints 
that remind remind us of all the days that we were able to be out and about. So this is really interesting. Another group is a completely separate group, still identifying as middle class, but a totally different approach. And instead of defining themselves by their education and sort of trying to maybe impress other people, you know, I've got the certificates and qualifications, that sort of thing. This is much more about them and, and what they can do. Their passport is their sort of literally their passport to freedom and, and, and to being able to do something their parents couldn't because they couldn't afford it. I think that's right. The other thing that's crucially important about about this group, how much time they spent telling us how different they were from their parents. And and travel was one of those big differentiators. And and I think that for people symbolized the the, the journey, literally the journey that they had been on from where you know, from where they'd grown up and their family backgrounds to where they were now. And that is it is fascinating. And I suppose it's that thing, isn't it, of growing up in a working class, less well-off household, that's just sort of baseline. And then if you do move up the, the income scale and you get a bit more disposable income, it, it's things like holidays or car, more expensive cars or, or whatever it might be. That That's what get all signing up to whiskey clubs or buying some artwork. It's those extra little bits of disposable income. OK, so let's move on to the, the most working class group now. So this is people who say that they are working class, but also that their parents were working class. Same question. Uh, it's show and tell. What objects sums up your class status? A clock in, clock out at work, Bob. Going to work, clocking on, doing your shift, clocking off, going home. And that's kind of sums up my working class life, really, yeah. Good, honest, hard-wearing boots. So I can do a good, honest day's work. These two here are my mum and dad, which we lost recently. And they instilled in me work values, what I am, where I am, where I come from. So I, I owe everything to those two, really. I bought a duster and a rubber glove. I'm a housekeeper for a timeshare apartment. I have brought two things, my smile and my hands. Because I work, I've always worked in retail with people, with helping people you know, choose clothes and blah, blah, blah. So I just think that it gives you a good connection with people if they see a happy face. This is more like the experience from 10 years ago, that people de- defining themselves by their, their job and their tools of the trade. That introduction to that focus group could have been, I could have been in a time warp, it could have been the, the introduction from 10 years. And it's not just about what they said and that, that very, very close reference of your, your class identity to the work that you do. There was also a sense of pride underpinning all of this, which was so striking and was present all the way through that particular session that that group of people felt very proud of their background, their class background. It was something that they, you know, they felt very strongly. It was part of their identity that, and I, you know, I found that very striking indeed. Okay, let's listen to the last group next. Uh, So this is the group who say they're working class, but say they had middle class parents. So sort of defining themselves against their parents, but in the opposite uh, direction. Let's see what they brought in as their, the, uh, the object for their show and tell. I brought my very sexy oversized sports direct mug. I feel that every house in uh, Britain has to have one. Like my cup of tea in the morning. Like a big cup of tea in the morning. So yeah, I think this sums up working class people, I I like to think. I've got my cup of tea. (laughs) (laughs) I think I've drank tea since I've been about six months old. Um, And it's just, it's what I've always known and it's what my grandparents always had and to me, it's just a staple of, as Ian said, like a staple of working class. A builder's mug of tea. <laughs> a loaf of bread. 
Um, I'm working class. I feel like if I don't go to work, I won't get my bread. My my dinosaur lunchbox. I've never not had a lunchbox. Um, I remember when I was a kid, I had free school dinners for a long time. And then for a while, I did not. My folks, they were kind of teetering. They, they'd bought a house. They were a little bit better off than they used to be. Um, but still weren't rolling in in uh, in cash, so it was always tricky to be able to actually afford to pay for school meals when I didn't um, qualify for for free school meals anymore. And so they'd send me send me to school with a packed lunch instead. There we are. So this is right down to sort of literally bread and butter issues, food and drink on the table, and tea and even better if you could have a, a, a massive sports direct mug of tea in some ways this group was the was the hardest to pin down actually in terms of um their identity their class identity uh they were the most uncertain but what they did and this was i suppose reminiscent in some ways of those cafetiers 10 years ago but 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 depicting something slightly different so they were depicting their their chosen working class identity through um you know, honest to goodness sort of food and drink, you know, a, a, a nice mug of tea, a straightforward lo- loaf of bread. So, I, yeah, I thought this was all quite interesting as well. OK, so that's the groups as they stand. And we, we listen to all, all of them. And obviously, they, they just sit alongside the opinion polls because the opinion poll gives us sort of the state of the nation. But it's really good to hear people in their own voices. The really striking thing from the opinion poll is that... The the easy assumption is well better off people are sort of higher up the class ladder so you know middle class people are better off than working class people but it's much more complicated than that and the, the further you move up the scale it doesn't necessarily mean that you go from being working class to middle class does it no it doesn't although I would say that money still matters and one of the the, the striking things from the poll um, was that if you identify as working class you are much more likely to say that you have money problems. Um, for example, you're much more likely to say it would be a big problem to replace a large household item, like, you know, if your fridge breaks or your washing machine breaks um, this year. And that was 41% of, of, of working class people said it would be a problem compared with 25% of middle class. And working class people were also more likely to say that they didn't have the time or money um, for what, what was almost a bit of a luxury, which is to check if the products that you're buying are ethically produced. So, so there were some sort of money issues in there. I suppose it, it's that the sort of, you know, can you cope with an emergency is uh, is a really interesting test on that. Let's take a listen to uh, this was Shani, who was in one of the uh, middle class groups coming at it from the other end, in a sense, explaining why her financial position made her middle class. Being comfortable, being able to not um, not having to check my bank account all the time to see if I've got money to make to pay for something in the supermarket is a massive privilege for me, and I, you know, I often take that for granted. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? Is knowing that you've got enough money in the bank to go to the shops and not have to worry about whether or not you can pay. The other thing that really struck me was more than a quarter of those earning under twenty one thousand pounds, which is much less than the national average wage. A quarter of those on under £21,000 said they were middle class and more than a quarter of those earning more than £62,000 say they're working class. So the so the money, you know, you could be quite well off and still consider yourself uh, to be working class. In fact, let's take a listen to uh, Steve. This is him explaining why he would always consider himself to be working class. I mean, I've dragged, I've dragged myself up um, since I was a kid from from doing menial jobs and, and to survive. And now I'm the manager of a company. 
but I still class myself as one of the lads as working class. There's no class structure in what you do work-wise. Mm. You know, I could be a multimillionaire. And I'm still working class. That's how I was brought up. That's what was instilled in me by my parents to be. It's the background, isn't it, that he's talking about, and that, that sense of belonging that's so important to him. And he was clearly somebody who, uh, you know, had made quite a lot of money, was running his own business, doing doing pretty well. But, uh, you know, his his loyalty to the working class that he felt he belonged to was completely unshaken by that. This is Matt Chorley speaking to Deborah Mattinson about the Social Class 2021 project by Britain Thinks. One thing that struck me when some of the people in the working class groups were talking about their jobs and describing the sort of jobs that working class people might do, the word menial got bandied around a lot, low paid. And then there was a really interesting conversation about whether or not the public perception of those low paid menial jobs had changed given everything that happened in the last year. Poorly paid jobs, not executives of companies and stuff That's but they what... might be they might be trivial but they're the most important jobs on the planet of course of course i think that's been proven with this um pandemic hasn't it all of a sudden yeah. as shop workers with key workers we're not we we weren't important before but actually now we're we're more more we're more needed and people have realized how important life life couldn't go on without us could it Appreciated. So that's really interesting, isn't it? Is it now? Yeah, absolutely right. It's, I'm not just talking about sort of doctors and nurses and hospitals, but key workers, people who work in supermarkets, people who collect the bins. Suddenly, people. Uh, it seems the public valuing those jobs a bit more. Yeah, I think that sense of pride is really intensified by that, isn't it? And I mean, they're not wrong. I mean, we know from other work that we've done at Britain Thinks, uh, the survey that we did recently showed that eight out of ten think that those essential workers should all be recognised, and very clearly not just NHS workers, but as he said, you know, you know, sort of people who are shop workers, all those people that we've all relied on, we're looking at again with kind of a fresh pair of eyes, and they feel that, and they've got more of a spring in their step and feel really good about themselves but this is this is a new phenomenon um and you know i, I think a very positive one yeah absolutely the other thing that was striking up on on uh, jobs in particular half of working class people said they just saw work as a means to an end rather than something they love doing but only a, a well, less than a quarter of middle class people said the same so it's that sort of you know if you if you love the job you're doing and yeah that's that's a luxury and you can you know as well as also paying the bills but sometimes if you just need to pay the bills and you don't necessarily always love your job so if it's not money and it's not the job that you do and it's not your educational background what is it that defines your class one of the most interesting conversations which was then borne out in the polling as well i thought was on food we are what we eat one in five people say the food you eat says more about your class than your income. So first of all, let's hear from one of the working class focus groups. Uh, this was Jason uh, talking about the object that he'd bought. I brought along a tin of beans and sausages. And <laughs> that's because you see all these things on the telly and on Facebook when you're reading them about all these pre-made meals that you can get delivered to your door. And that's my pre-made meal. It would be nice to be able to have the fancy meals, etc. But actually... You've got to live to your means, haven't you? And you've got to eat what you can. So that was uh, beans and sausages in a tin for Jason. And then this was Sam, uh, who was in the most middle-class group. And uh, his object was also food, uh, but a, a bit different. A tea cake. When I was a child, I used to have, like, tea cake at time, which was, like, 4 o'clock. And when I went to secondary school, everyone was like, you what? You have tea at 4 o'clock? And they were like, that's our tea at 6 o'clock. And I was like, oh, no, we have, like, a cup of tea. And like a crumpet or a tea cake. 
which um, turns out no one else did because no one else was middle class because it's not something that I ever thought of as being middle class until everyone else was like, but we have our actual tea at five. And I was like, oh no, I have my dinner at like eight o'clock. And everyone was like, what? Like sort of how Mediterranean slash Aristotle. This shock at the realisation that not everybody sat down at four o'clock and ate their crumpet or their tea cake, um, but it was his family that was so slightly unusual in, in that context was, was hilarious. I suppose that's interesting, isn't it? Particularly if you're a child, you don't cough often realise that, you know, the way you live your life is different to everyone else. And that can cut both ways. You could be living in a house without any money, but you don't realise you haven't got any money until you go grow up a bit and you go to some other houses and that sort of thing. It sort of cuts both ways. But it was really striking that people really viewing their class through through the food on the table and what they eat and when they eat it. And, and we heard the food story again and again. And that is, of course, you know, the, the, the 2021 version of the cafetiere. So talk about, uh, you know, if you're middle class, then, you know, you might pick out more luxurious things. You might go for particular brands. Uh, and if you're working class, then it's, it you know, it's much more often much more basic or you, you would deliberately choose the cup of tea, the, the, you know, the can of beans. I thought that was very interesting. And it was a similar picture. One of the questions in the focus group was what do you do on your Sundays? And uh, middle class people, there was lots of sort of long country walks, bottles of wine, visiting a gallery uh, and so on. And working class people said, well, I work often or spend time with families or just relax because some of them, so they didn't have the energy to do very much in their spare time. Yeah, because their work is very hard. Yeah, exactly. You're exhausted and you just want to catch up. OK, let's talk about the politics of all of this, though, because normally we talk about politics with you, Deborah. But, uh, and you've spent a long time uh, polling and doing focus groups with voters, particularly for the Labour Party, uh, before you set up Britain Thinks. And the, the point at which class and politics cross, and there's also been an awful lot of ink spilt, not all of it, always terribly insightful about this idea that Boris Johnson some you know the old Etonian has cracked it with the working class you know flat cap wearing northerner while Keir Starmer is a hit with the southerner lovies uh, if you like so one of the questions in the uh, focus group was was what do you think of the Labour Party is it is it for the middle class is it for the working class and this is a selection of uh, from across the groups uh, of this is what they had to say yeah I, I would have put working class middle class um, before, but yeah, I just feel like they've lost a lot of working class followers um, recently. And I, yeah, I, I, again, I'm focusing on the sort of like lefty lovey kind of middle class, uh, I feel like they're almost un- uniformly Labour voters. Once upon a time, if you were a working class, you were definitely a Labour man, you know. And I think if you were perceived, you know, management or middle class, you were definitely a Conservative. And I think that's that's blurred a lot. So if you were advising Keir Starmer right now, Deborah, what would you be telling him? Well, I mean, I think, you know, from the poll as well, that you know, that those um, snippets from the focus groups absolutely reflect what we then saw in the poll where we had 48% of people agreeing, almost half the public, saying that the Labour Party is no more likely to represent the interests of the working class than the Conservative. As you know, Matt, I've spent a lot of time in the Red Wall, um, those seats that Labour lost in the last election, you know, for, for the book that I wrote, kind of interviewing people there. And this was a story that I heard again and again, this sense that that the Labour Party, as, as one of the women we just heard from there, was now very much uh, about middle class graduates in the South, rather than working class northerners and, and working class people in the Midlands and a feeling that the party has sort of abandoned them. And, you know, I mean, yes, if I was advising 
Keir Starmer, I would be saying you need to think very carefully about how you win back those people and show them that you are, you know, the party for them. Because at the moment, those are people who have turned to the Conservatives and are not unhappy about having done that. And, you know, one of them said to me, Boris Johnson desnobified the Tory party. His persona was one they found attractive when they voted for him. They felt that he understood them and, 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 and was on their side. So, you know, there's a lot of ground for Labour to catch up on. And actually the north-south divide and the geographical split is one of the, the, the ways that the class does appear to be quite heavily divided. So in London, more than half of people say they're middle class, the same in the southwest. But the further north you go, it changes. 40, only 46% in the East Midlands say the middle class, 40% in Yorkshire, down to 31% in the northeast. So that, that division is there. Just finally then, winding up our conversation about class with Deborah Matteson. Deborah, what did you find from this polling and this focus? groups that surprised you? I wasn't actually expecting that we would get this very tightly defined sense of working class. My feeling is that although the middle class has grown, it is much more amorphous. It's much less clear cut. What people associate with being middle class is much more varied and vague. Uh, Whereas that working, that strong working class identity carried with it a pride, almost a defiance that, that actually sort of slightly took your breath away, I think. Deborah Batterson from Britain Thinks talking us through the focus group and the polling that she did for us. Now that let's stick with class and an extra bonus chat on the episode today with Russell Kane, comedian from a working class background who now admits he is basically middle class and also self-styled middle class battle axe, Christine Hamilton. <laughs> Russell, let's start with you. Let's talk about your background growing up in, like I said, working class Ethics, but you've talked quite a lot about how you didn't always feel part of that, but then also not feeling middle class as well. What's been your relationship with class? Well, I would say we, we have to make quite a distinction. Um, I think working class is quite a homogenous lump. And the thing is, if you really have grown up working class instead of like pretend for radio working class, you don't actually <laughs> want you don't want to be. You can tell straight away someone that hasn't because they try and they try and be working class on purpose. Whereas I'm constantly trying to drink wine and, and show my Penguin Classics off, meaning I definitely started life poor. Um, but, so I would say upper working class. We were the Thatcher graduates. My dad bought his own council house. As soon as he did, out puffed the chest. We were a cut above everyone else in our council street who signed on, didn't own their own house. Yes, he was a manual labourer. He's a skilled manual labourer, though, and it's a very distinct feeling of superiority that we were the richest ones in the street, that we were the elites. We lived, we bought our own council house. We extended it. My dad sunk a swimming pool in the back garden, uh, which he built with his own hands. It wasn't until I got to 14, 15, I was like, oh, I'm not seen as posh by everyone else. So I grew up feeling privileged because we were the best amongst our class the very distinct thatcherite buy your own council house don't sign on never claim benefits <laughs> die in the gutter rather than claim credit uh, work for a living and that is i have the, exactly the same ethic now even though i'm a comedian <laughs> it's ridiculous because i've got no money worries at all but the brain uh, the, the cultural consumption pattern remains that when i'm trying to explain this to people on stage i always say you wouldn't say to someone 
of any sort of international extraction, a person of colour who settled here or maybe a Romanian person who settled here, you wouldn't, once they'd learned English and changed their passport, say you now have no Romanianness left in you. You must delete it and forget it. Culturally, by, in my DNA, I will always be working class, even if I had Lambos on the drive. That's my first language. That's the way I was raised, and that's the way I'll remain. I don't have Lambos on the drive, although I've got Prius. <laughs> it's interesting, because you, you make that point about being a comedian. I mean, you are a successful comedian, but you do sort of live and die by your own skill and work ethic, and, you know, particularly you're starting out. It's a lot of hard, hard slogs. So it's not, I mean, it's not a manual trade as such, but it is a trade and a craft that you get, need to get good at, and then you need to put a lot of effort into, and the money in your bank depends really strongly on your work ethic and, say, and ability. Yeah. I always say to an audience, like, I can't bear it when people are like, oh my God, like acting like I'm in some sort of ivory tower or there's something different or <laughs> special about the fact that what you do happens to have a microphone in front of it. It is no different from a Tyler. I just have a white van full of jokes and that's the way I approach it. <laughs> I approach it as a business. I'm a limited company. I make a profit and loss, and that is my that is my work ethic. That's the way I approach each gig as well. I, the the only big difference is I absolutely love what I do and can't wait to bounce out of bed. Unlike a lot of my cousins and my friends who do what they have to do because because they have to. So yeah, so class class wise, I would say I've maintained the the consumption patterns, and I don't think class is based on income. I think it's cult. It's closer to culture or ethnicity and it has to do with how you're raised you're definitely perceived by accent in this country as much as you are by skin color i, I would say my true. experience really of growing true. up well let's bring in uh, christine hamilton then christine a different uh, background uh, to to russell's you grew up with po riding ponies in hampshire Yes, I mean, I had a, a very middle class background. My father was a GP in a small market town in the middle of the New Forest. And I had a very lucky, privileged, looking back on my childhood, it's just one great big happy blot. I can't, you know, there was nothing bad about it. And I was privileged. Uh, like Russell, we had a swimming pool. It was not a smart swimming pool. It was basically a hole in the ground full of concrete into which poured water. And every couple of days I would pour in... Um, chlorine just to keep the bugs down and a couple of times a summer it would be emptied it was a very basic swimming pool but it was nevertheless a swimming pool and we had a tennis court it was very basic uh, but it was a tennis court it was overhung by trees difficult um but i was very very privileged and i was aware of being privileged from a very young age because in a small town if your father is one of a very small handful of professionals i think there were maybe two if three men doctors I'll tell you what, try and get Christy back on the phone because we've slightly lost her a bit there. Um, yeah. Russell, in, in terms of what do you think are the indicators of, of class in, in Britain in, the 20, uh, in 2021? And, and what impact does it have on you and your job and the audiences you get? Is, is there such a thing as a working class comedian and a, and a middle class yeah. comedian? So I think there are a certain number of professions. There's not many of them. I would say uh, footballer, um, comedian, actor, advertising, where I ended up working before, probably not a coincidence, where it's a sort of classless environment. You know, like once you go to university, if you've gone to university, it's sort of classless. You become outside the system. You're, you're, you're there based on your merit. And that's what comedy's like. You're just there based on how funny you are. So I could, and anyone on the night of the week, have someone from Eton on before me and someone who grew up as a single parent family on after me. So it's a very mixed sort of classless environment. Um, that said, I do think people like to 
go and see the demographic they feel represented by their jester a lot of the time. Um, I don't, I like to have a mix in my audience. So I try to make sure the observations are broad enough and funny enough so that I will have a real mix. And I'm delighted to say I do, but a lot of people will have be like a Northern comment with a Northern audience. I think it more depends on the type of material you're doing. If you're doing more observational material, it's going to connect with everyone from Prince Harry person of the week, all the way down to, you know, a, G, a GP in the new forest, all the way down to a builder, Gary from South end. They're all going to laugh at the idea of the all inclusive buffet on holiday. We've all experienced, experienced it at some level for example whereas if i'm going to go on stage and talk about identity politics i'm a gay vegan i'm just going to talk about my gay veganism you're going to attract people gay vegans more than everyone else do you see what i mean yeah no i think that's definitely what about finally just about with, with you russell so, social mobility is that still possible is it better does it matter if, if if we're less defined by our class maybe it doesn't matter if you don't move from one we're to not another. Le- we're not less defined by our class i don't believe that for one second i think uh, i I absolutely don't believe that. I think this is absolutely a class-bound society. And uh, the difference between when my dad was born and when I was born is my dad had a number of tools available to him. He could pass his 11 plus. He didn't. He went to a secondary modern and his life was ruined. And I hate the 11 plus and I don't agree with it. However, there was a springboard there for my mum and dad. They both failed. I'm married to a lady who failed her 11 plus. All my in-laws failed their 11 plus. I don't back the 11 plus. I'm just saying it was a way for bright working class kids, if they could ace that exam to get lifted up. We've also Thatcher, someone else I don't agree with, not fan of selling off our council houses, makes me very uncomfortable, no doubt about it. I'm sat here showing off to you today because my dad bought his own council house. That's how I ended up at uni. A sense of pride, my masculinity was lifted up with my dad's. So those two things have gone now, which is why if you're a single lad born in a tower block to a single mum recovering drug user, you're less likely to get to Oxbridge than you were in 1965. And that's sad, but it's the truth. Yeah, although there was a really sort of uh, heartlifting story in the paper today that there's a school somewhere in London, a sort of deprived part of London, where they've now got more of their students going to Oxbridge than Eton has, which I know is, it's a shame that it's now that you know it's taken this long to, to be able to celebrate that. But that is at least good news. Russell Cade, thank you so much for joining us on uh, Time Twenty. I think we've got Christine Hamilton back with us. Are you there, Christine? We have. Yes, I'm sorry about that. Um, Russell was talking about the eleven plus, which um, actually neatly segues into where I think I probably got dropped earlier because of the broadband. Um, I was at this very uh, restrictive girls' public school where um, order was the order of the day, as it were, and I rebelled against it. Anyway, I was expelled, and my parents, fortunately, had taken the precaution of making me sit the 11+, plus. I think in case they fell on hard times. But in fact, I was immediately able to transfer to a grammar school, a co-ed grammar school. I was about 13. And it was a wonderful experience for me because having had all the restrictions of a single-sex boarding school, I was suddenly thrown into this wonderful cauldron. And I learned so quickly, no mention after day one of having a swimming pool or a tennis court. Mummy and daddy (laughs) became mum and dad. And I soon learned that you had dinner in the middle of the day. And somebody mentioned earlier about tea cakes at tea. No mention of that sort of thing. So I learned very, very quickly. And I fitted in very well. I enjoyed all that. But it was a very quick lesson in, you know, the differences that there are. And, you know, class is something we'll never finally eradicate it. But I think it's far less important nowadays. But it's all there in the background. It's, it's more of a 
it's more a serial concept now and people can move around between classes but there are these telltale giveaways i mean you know you, you were talking earlier about about where you shop and the foods you eat and and how many bits of nuts and seeds there are in your bread and all that sort of thing which <laughs> it, it's it's a, it's a little things that give that give people away and, and russell was talking about accents as well but it you know i, I got a a very good friend of mine who was born in, I'm not going to mention where it was, but it is an archetypal working class town. Everybody would instantly identify that is a working class town. He is now a multi, multi, multi zillionaire. But he has, and he has everything that he could possibly want. You know, never mind one swimming pool, he's got an indoor and an outdoor, and, you know, all that. But he has never, ever lost his working class roots, his working class values, and indeed his childhood friends. And it's very easy for people to move to move seamlessly. But you know, aspiration is a good thing. And most most parents, above all, they want their children to do better than they did. And if that means moving up a class and having things that were perceived as middle class, if you're working class and your children have those, those parents will feel that they succeeded. And frankly, what's wrong with that? And just touching on, you talk about you know, keeping your friends and that sort of thing. Given, and lots of people know you for the highs and lows, if you like, that you and Neil have been yeah. through. Yes. Uh, in the bad times, was it your working class or your middle class friends who rally around the most? Gosh, I've never really thought about that question. I mean, I've had most questions many times. I've never had that <laughs> question. I'm not sure I can answer it just like that. But what I'll tell you what we did find that some of the people who were the most supportive were actually our gay friends. And I think that's because they know what it's like <clears throat> to be... And, we're, you know, we're going back 25 years when things weren't quite as easy for uh, gays as they are now. They knew what it was like to be, to be whatever you want to call it, victimised, misunderstood, etc., etc. Um, but whether it was the working class... Or, well, of course, we were in politics. I mean, we still are. My husband's a member of the Welsh Parliament. So when I said I was a housewife, it's a bit disingenuous because I worked for him. So I'm a, hard, a hard-working gal still at the age of 71. Um, but in politics, you very quickly learn who your friends are of whatever class. And um, we were surprised by some who simply didn't want to know. And equally surprised on the other side by those who came forward and said, very happy to be your friend and to be seen with you and support you. So it's when you're in trouble, you do learn who your friends are from, from whatever class. But, you know, the person who had the last word on class was the wonderful Dame Barbara Cartland, who clearly came from um, the upper classes. And she was asked by an interviewer once whether she thought <clears throat> that class barriers in this country had broken down. To which she said, yes, darling, of course they have. She said, of course they have. Otherwise, somebody like you would not be interviewing somebody like me. <laughs> so we're, we're, getting, we're getting there. <laughs> well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, you can listen on DAB Radio, on your smart speaker. Get the Times Radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box podcast of the Times Radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription to get that. Go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. 
To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.